For those of you that know a little bit about my story, you know I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad was a pastor all growing up, and there's some blessings and some curses that come with it. The blessing is that whenever uh, there's a Sunday school answer that's, or a Sunday school question that somebody needs an answer for, they always look to the pastor's kid and say, well, Brad should know, right? That's a double-sided sword. It's also kind of a negative place to be at times. Um, the other thing was that I grew up with the reality of knowing kind of the challenges and the dysfunction of church. I grew up seeing a bit behind the curtain of what church could be like and the challenges and the dysfunction that at times is present there. I found myself loving Christ but frustrated with what I would have called organized religion. The local, physical, dysfunctional church. As I moved on to college and I came down here to the university, I found myself disinterested with the local church. And choosing instead to engage with parachurch ministries, I personally was a navigator when I was at the University of Nebraska. And I would have told you at the time that I preferred what I would have called the Big C Church to the local church of Christ. The Big C Church, the parachurch was where I found myself being discipled and brought up. It wasn't until later in life that I grew in my understanding of what the local church was all about and what God gave us in her. And maybe you find yourselves resonating with this idea, struggling to love the physical, functional, or dysfunctional local church. Over the next few months, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to a divided and broken congregation, and he's answering questions like, what is the church all about? What is the purpose? Why does the church gather? How does it gather? How do members and leaders in the church fit into that reality? How do believers live and interact with the world outside of the church and with each other? We're going to address questions of personal holiness, brotherly love, church unity, personal autonomy, eternal hope, and so much more. And there's a tremendous amount of practical instruction and loving correction found in this book. But despite writing to arguably the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament, Paul starts off with one of the most uplifting greetings he would write. We're going to read it here in 1 Corinthians 1 through 9. And I want you to consider how Paul addresses this challenging church and ask, do I struggle to love the church? Read with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What an introduction. What a greeting for this church. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this in more detail. Father, I confess that as we stand before 1 Corinthians, it is a challenging and daunting book. 
It is a book that deals with a lot of tricky subjects, a lot of challenging topics, that deals with a church that was struggling in so many ways. But Father, there is also so much encouragement to be had here. Lord, as we walk through this one section at a time, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your word, that your spirit would be active in this church, that would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, that our eyes would be open to the truth of what you've called your church to be in this world. Lord, guide our time together, specifically this morning. Lord, speak through me. Lord, work in this church. Change our hearts and our minds, conform them to the image of Christ. For your glory alone, in Christ's name, amen. So let me ask you, is that how you would have started a letter of severe correction? (laughs) I know it's not how I would have expressed my frustration with the church at 18 years old. I might have come out of the gate swinging a bit more than Paul does here. And as such, I've entitled this week's message, Loving Christ's Broken Church. Paul's introduction to this challenging church expresses Paul's love for his church, for the church of Christ, the broken church of Christ. It breaks down into basically two sections. You probably saw it as we were reading through it. Verses 1 through 3 I've entitled, Greeting a Broken Church. Greeting a Broken Church. We're going to look at how Paul introduces himself to this church. Verses 4 through 9, we see a celebrating a broken church. What does Paul celebrate in the life of this church? And then I'm going to take a little bit of a moment at the end, and we're going to ask, why are we studying a broken church? What is the value to us of looking at this church in 1 Corinthians for us right now? But let's begin, like I said, with the greeting to this broken church. Verses 1 through 3, we read, or Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul, obviously, introduces himself as the author of this letter, and this is a man who goes without saying that he needs no introduction. He needs no introduction either to us, because we're pretty familiar with the person of Paul, probably, or specifically to this church in Corinth. As as James read, he was the founder of this church. But let me give you a little bit of backstory in case you're unfamiliar with Paul. Paul was born Saul. He was one of the elite Pharisees, this up-and-coming generation that was excited to make sure they persecuted and stomped out this new sect of Christianity that was coming up within Judaism. He was schooled under Gamaliel and had all the right credentials. And as such, he became a persecutor of the church. His desire was to make sure that this Christian group was never seen again. You can read about his conversion story in Acts 8 and 9. If you haven't read about Paul's journey to Damascus and the blinding light, I'd encourage you to read that before we come back to this again next week. But as a result of this, Paul became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Whereas the other 11 disciples primarily focused on the Jews, Paul became this ambassador to the Gentiles, to those that weren't part of the Jewish nation. And he was also, as we mentioned, the founder of this church. We read in Acts 18, 1 through 11, that Paul stayed in the city of Corinth for about 18 months, preaching the gospel, establishing this church, getting them ready to be faithful to God. And how does he introduce himself to this church who would have known him very well? He says, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will 
of God. Right off the bat, he establishes his authority and his credibility with this church. It's important to note here that Paul expected this church to receive and obey his words as the words of God. Which forces me to pause for a moment and ask the question, is this how you will receive this study? Is this how you will hear these words? There's going to be a lot of things in this book of 1 Corinthians that are going to run into conflict with our common thinking and what our culture tells us. Are we prepared to receive these words as the words of God delivered through his apostle, Paul? I would encourage you here on the front end of the study, commit today to bring your mind, to bring your heart into alignment with what this book says. When it comes into conflict, as it inevitably will, with the common thinking of our day, commit today to bring your mind and your heart into alignment with what this book says. And it's interesting to note here as well that Paul doesn't only mention his credentials, he also mentions his company. He says, and our brother Sosthenes. Now, who's Sosthenes? It's interesting to note, we didn't go on and read verses 12 through 17 in Acts chapter 18, but there's actually an individual later in that section, I encourage you to read it this afternoon, uh, that gets beaten up as a result of a riot that occurs because Paul is preaching the gospel in Corinth. Now, Sosthenes was a fairly common name, so we don't know definitively that this is the same Sosthenes, but there's a fairly good chance that he's, res- or he's, he's, he's writing back to this Corinthian church and he's referencing this Sosthenes who got beat up when Paul first came to Corinth. And it's interesting, he's kind of saying, hey, Paul, say hi to them, All right? This man has now gone on and he's helping Paul in his ministry in spite of that experience. Then he goes on and he says who he's writing to. And I want to pause and I want to take a little bit of time and talk about this. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, first of all, what do we need to know about the city of Corinth? Corinth was what you would call a metropolitan mecca. It had a population of about 500,000 people, about half of which were slaves. It's also worth noting that Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Okay? Another city that would have been vying for that title was the city of Athens. Anybody know the city of Athens? Kind of a big deal, right? But instead, Corinth gets the capital of the Roman province of Achaia because they were on a major trade hub. Both sea trade and land trade ran through the city of Corinth, and as a result, they were an incredibly wealthy, well-to-do city. They were also an incredibly pagan and immoral city, as the temple of Aphrodite was located in the city of Corinth. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and you can imagine what all went with that. So bad was the culture of the city that you can find early writers using a term that basically implies Corinthians are all loose and immoral in their lives. To call somebody a Corinthian was basically to say they had immoral dealings and immoral lifestyles. In short, they were in a thoroughly lost culture. A thoroughly lost culture, much like our own, right? That had separated all moorings from God's design for humanity and God's purpose for people. They're operating in this difficult city. Now, what do we know about the church Corinth. He addresses the church of God that is in Corinth. The Corinthian church was a relatively young church. We anticipated it was about five years old at the time that Paul is writing this letter to them. We learn later in the letter that it was an incredibly gifted church. They had a lot of abilities. They had a lot of talent. They had a lot of spiritual gifts that we'll address later. 
They were also a diverse church. There was likely Jews and Gentiles present in this church, and they were an incredibly enthusiastic body. They were excited. They had a zeal to serve God. They also struggled with a number of issues. Some critical problems were present in this immature and young church. In chapters 1 through 4, we're going to see their divisions over leadership. They were struggling over the right leaders to follow and how to have allegiance to those leaders. In chapters 5 through 7, we're going to see their disagreements about morality. How do we live a faithful life in obedience to God in this perverse and sexually explicit city? Chapters 8 through 10 address their disputes over their rights and freedoms. How should we be free in Christ but not abuse others with our rights? And then in 11 through 14, Paul addresses their disunity over their gatherings. They were fighting even about when they came together and how they came together. As a result, they had written Paul a letter asking him specific questions, saying, how do we address these practical topics? How do we address these problems we're struggling in our church? And Paul will address those questions one at a time. We'll see that kind of starting in chapter 7 as he moves on to that section. But what Paul is again and again going to point back to is their issue was their own self-dependence and pride. Because all of this that flows out of that issue is a function of their lack of dependence upon God, their lack of need for God. They were enthusiastic, but they were fundamentally a broken church, a dysfunctional and a a disunity, a disunited, can I say that? Disunited church, okay? And yet, and yet, how did Paul address this church? How does Paul start out his letter. I want to note three titles that Paul gives them right off the bat in this letter. Chapter 2, or verse 2, excuse me, he says, first, to the church. He starts off by calling them the church. Literally, the term here is the one we're familiar with, ecclesia, the assembling or the gathering. Despite their unlikely origins, despite coming from a perverse city, despite the fact that they weren't walking with God, Paul refers to them as the church, the church of God. He doesn't call into question their salvation. He doesn't call into question whether they're believers, despite their behavior. And again and again, Paul will stress both love and unity in this book. And we need to pick up on those themes as we walk through it. So he calls them the church, despite their unlikely origins. Second, he calls them the sanctified. Did you see it? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Despite their unworthy behavior, Paul calls them sanctified. Now, we tend to think of sanctified in terms of the process of being renewed, the process of our behavior being changed. That's not the way he's referring to it here. He will in a minute. Okay? So we tend to think of justified, sanctified, glorified in those sort of terms of becoming more like Christ. And he's going to address that in just a moment, but that's not the way he's using this in this section. He says you were, past tense, sanctified. Those that were sanctified once and for all in Christ. He's saying you are positionally holy. You've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Paul's going to again and again stress their worship and their victory for what Christ has done for them. And here, before moving on to their behavior, he says who they are in Christ. They are fundamentally, positionally sanctified by the work of Christ. Lastly, he calls them the saints. 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he says, you are those that have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, and you are called to be saints together. Despite their unholy lives, he says, you're called to be saints. Now, there's a common misconception related to this term. This saints term is very similar to the sanctified term. They're related to holy in their origin. But a saint here is not a better Christian. We tend to think of a saint as a better Christian. Literally, the saint term just indicates someone that's set apart to be holy, someone who is called to be holy and to be faithful to God. It's their calling. So what he's saying is you are sanctified, you are positionally holy in Christ, but you are called to be faithful, you are called to practice holiness as well, to live in accordance with what Christ has already bought you. Not to earn your salvation, but in obedience to God and to win the unbeliever. He's going to address how this Corinthian church is supposed to function with those outside the church. And he will make the point that we will attract the attention of an unbelieving world insofar as our lives mapped our doctrine. We will attract the attention of an unbelieving world insofar as our lives match our doctrine. He says, you are positionally holy. You've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Now act that way. And yet he calls them saints. He's going to stress holiness and humility throughout this book, but he starts off by reminding them who they are. He sets a precedent for the rest of the book where Paul will again and again plead with them to act in accordance with who they are in Christ. To do what they say they believe doctrinally. Then he issues this blessing for them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Again, this is not how I would have started a book of rebuke, a corrective book to a church that had caused me personal frustration and anxiety and pain. Despite their divisions, their disagreements, their disputes, and their disunity, Paul greets them as brothers and sisters and saints due to the gospel. This is the principle. Paul sees the church of God through the lens of Christ. Paul sees the church of God, this church in Corinth, through the lens of Christ. And I think this is a good reminder for us, at least it was a good reminder for me. Because it's, it's really easy to become critical of the church, isn't it? It's really easy to become critical of other believers and what we see in their lives. And the way they're living or not living. It's really critical to become, or it's really easy to become critical of other churches in our city or around the country, isn't it? And it's even easy to become critical of our own fellowship, is it not? The things we struggle with, the things we're not doing well, the things we wish were better in our own church and fellowship. And Paul is about to start a loving correction of both doctrine and lifestyle. He's not saying this church doesn't need to be reformed. But he starts off by viewing them through the lens of Christ. It's necessary to correct both doctrine and lifestyle in other believers, but I would caution us to be a little bit hesitant of our criticism of the church. It is so easy in a digital era to get online and to criticize someone that we don't know 
Paul here starts off by reminding the saints who they are in Christ. He goes above and beyond that, and he celebrates God's work in the church. Look at verse 4, and we'll see celebrating a broken church. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He celebrates first God's grace in their lives. He says, God has given you grace to believe. Right? Did you pick up on that? I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This term grace conveys the concept of unmerited, undeserved favor. It's not surprising that he follows up given you in Christ Jesus. He's pointing to their salvation through the gospel. The fact that they didn't deserve Christ's grace. And yet they accepted this free gift of salvation through Christ. They didn't earn their salvation. They didn't merit God's grace. And yet God chose in his love to put his grace on them. This is the core of the gospel. This is what fundamentally all of us profess to believe. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we don't deserve a thing from God. And yet Christ came and he died on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sins. And it's only by faith in him that we earn any sort of holy standing before God. And so he says, remember and celebrate God's grace to believe in your lives. He goes on and he says, you've also been enriched in him. Verse five, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. He says, this church was full of gifted thinkers and speakers. Right? They, were, they were enriched in their speech and knowledge. And this was important to the Greeks. They highly valued intelligence and communication ability. They enjoyed standing out on the corners and in the, the places and debating all sorts of philosophies and differences of opinion. And so people that were intelligent or people that had good communication ability were lifted up and held in very high esteem in this community. Just like our culture, Right? where we value however many initials you have after your name, right? The more initials you have after the name, the more important you must be, right? We value someone's IQ. We value how many certifications they've received. It's easy to see where pride would begin to creep into this church, isn't it? They had gifted thinkers. They had been given all wisdom and knowledge and speech and knowledge. They were a gifted church, and Paul celebrates that. He's going to criticize the downside of that in a moment, but he celebrates that they have wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And then he confirms his testimony among them. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Oh, excuse me, verse six. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. It's exactly what we talked about, right? God said, there are people in this city whom I have reserved for myself. And Paul and those that were with him preached the gospel, and the testimony was confirmed. The gospel went forth with power, and this church professed faith and was baptized and believed. So he says God has confirmed his testimony among them. Paul starts off by celebrating their undeserved salvation in Christ. This is the foundation for the rest of the criticism that he's going to offer in the rest of the book. He celebrates their undeserved salvation. He also celebrates their gifts, God's gifts to them. Look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift. 
You are not lacking in any gift. He celebrates what God has given them. Now, what are these gifts? We're going to talk about a number of things over the coming weeks. Paul is going to address how this church had a number of gifted teachers. We've already talked about that. He's going to address how they had incredible material blessings. We'll talk about that. He's going to address how they had incredible Christian freedoms. We'll talk more about that. But most likely what he was referring to here is spiritual gifts. Those divinely given abilities when we place our faith in Christ, that God gives us the ability to edify and encourage other believers through the Holy Spirit's power. And he says to this church, in spite of their dysfunction, you are not lacking in any gift. You have all the abilities, you have all the gifts you need. It's unfortunate that God's good gifts have become a source of pride and division and immorality in this church. But Paul still rightfully celebrates the gifts that they were from God. He said, you've been given such incredible gifts, and Paul celebrates their God-given gifts at the beginning of this letter. Lastly, there's one more thing that we need to note that Paul notes here right at the front, right? He says also, Paul celebrates God's faithfulness to them. Look at verse 7 through 9. Paul celebrates God's faithfulness to them. He says, so that you're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you read this last section, let me just read back through it, the whole thing, 7, 8, 9. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you pick up on a theme there? Did you pick up on the prominence of Christ in Paul's declaration of the faithfulness of God? Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's at least four indicators of God's faithfulness that we see here. And I want to pause and talk through these just a moment. Verse 7, first, the imminent return of Christ. Paul highlights, he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wait in here implies an active, eager anticipation. This isn't like a sit back and do nothing while you wait for something to happen. It's more the idea of like a farmer cultivating and watering and weeding the field more than it is like sitting in a doctor's office, right? We've all been there. What do you do when you go into the doctor's office? You give them your name and then you are at their disposal, right? You will wait there as long as they want you to wait there. It's not that sort of waiting. It's an active, eager anticipation. He's saying Christ's return is imminent. God is faithful. He's going to come back. We talked about how God is paying attention in our study of Malachi in our last series. His point here is that Christ won't leave them here forever. Christ won't leave us here forever. To this church that was struggling, Paul reminds them that Christ is coming back. They needed to hear that message. If you need to hear that message, I would encourage you to read John 14 this afternoon, where Christ says to his disciples, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come back and I will receive you unto myself. This church that was struggling with obedience and faithfulness needed to hear that Christ was coming back. They also needed to be reminded of the sustaining power of Christ. Look at verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end? Who? Who is who? Our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. He highlights the sustaining power of Christ, the perseverance of the saints, 
that Christ has them in his hands, that he's not going to let them go. He says, Christ will hold you until the end, right? This is why we sing that song, right? He will hold me fast. I love that song. (laughs) I won't sing it for you right now, don't worry. But I love that song. He highlights the sustaining power of Christ in verse 7, or verse 8. He highlights the purifying work of Christ, who will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds them that Christ will once and for all purify them on the day he returns. That Christ will fully sanctify them when he comes back. He holds out this hope of perfection, not in this life, But when Christ returns to a church that was struggling to obey God, he says, Christ will one day purify you fully. Or as Philippians 1 verse 6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is a future hope. It is a reminder of God's faithfulness that even when we are failing, even when we are struggling and broken, Christ has promised to return, to hold us fast until that day, and to fully sanctify us and purify us when he comes. He reminds them of the purifying work of Christ. Lastly, he reminds them of one more thing in verse 9, the faithful fellowship of Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we're struggling with obedience, when we're struggling with faithfulness to God, we would do well to ponder the fact that we are in fellowship with Christ. That Christ has promised to never leave us or forsake us. That he is with us at all times. He says, Christ will never leave you. We can't help but think of the words of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, after telling the church what their mission is, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. And then he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ's presence is the verification that he will do the things that he's promised here earlier. He says, Christ will never leave us. So he celebrates the gifts that God has given them. He celebrates the grace that God has given them. But mostly, Paul celebrates the unbelievable faithfulness of their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Despite the fact that they are using God's grace as a license for sin, as we'll see, despite the fact that they are using God's gifts selfishly, as we'll see, despite the fact that they are oblivious to God's faithfulness to them, Paul celebrates God's work in and faithfulness to his church. Here's the principle. God is at work in even the most broken churches. Think about that for a moment. This dysfunctional, disunified, disagreeing, fighting, broken church God reminds them that he is faithful in this church. Now, before you flood my inbox, okay? 
What I am assuming here is that what we're talking about are genuine churches, genuine believers, genuinely repentant people that have allegiance to the gospel and have accepted faith through Christ. Not everything that calls itself a church in the world is a church. We know that. So I'm not saying that God has promised to be faithful to people that gather on Sunday morning that aren't preaching the gospel. That's not the promise I'm saying here. But if you have a gathering of people that are genuinely repentant, genuinely believing the gospel, even though they're dysfunctional, even though they're broken, even though they're struggling, Paul reminds them that God is faithful to them. He is at work in them. God is at work in even the most broken churches. And I think this is a good reminder for us too. It is easy in our self-help culture to get really down on our own personal walks, on the walks of others, on where our church is at. And we need to be reminded to celebrate God's work in our lives. Not how hard we're trying, not how much we're accomplishing in our own power, but celebrating the fact that the Spirit is bringing fruit in our hearts and lives. Have you taken time to consider how God has matured you over the last year? How God is producing the fruit of the Spirit in your own heart and life? It is so easy to get critical of the things we struggle with, and Paul is going to address the things that this church is struggling with. But first he takes time to say, and God is at work in you. Remember that. Have you taken time to celebrate God's work in the lives of others around you? When was the last time you took a moment in a conversation with somebody and just paused to say, I see growth in this fruit of the Spirit in your life? And to praise God for the fact that you seem more loving today than you were yesterday. That you are more gracious today than you were a year ago. That you are more any number of things that we might talk about. He celebrates God's work in this church. When was the last time you celebrated God's work in someone else around you? When was the last time we celebrated God's work in the life of this church? God's incredible faithfulness to us as a body. God's incredible faithfulness to be working in and loving broken saints and sinners that we are. I know it's easy, and maybe it's particularly easy as a leader in the church, to struggle and be critical with the church because you're aware of what goes on in the church. And 1 Corinthians 12 in particular has been a reproof for me. 1 Corinthians 13 as well. It's a good reminder for us to celebrate God's work in our lives, the lives of others, and the life of our church. Which brings me maybe to the question you all have been wondering at this point. Brad, if this is such a broken church, why are we studying this book? Are we really that bad? Well, I think that the issues that the Corinthian church struggles with are very similar to issues that we could potentially struggle with as well. I think the bigger reality is the way Paul starts this. The hope that he offers for even the most dysfunctional church out there. But more practically speaking, to answer your, address, or your question a bit more practically, let me give you three things about the book of Corinthians that I think are why we should be studying it right now. The first is, this book is incredibly timely. This book, I think, is incredibly timely for our season as a church. 
Again, unless this is your first Sunday, and now that Dimitri has gotten up here and talked, you know that we're in pastoral transition. You know that we are seeking what God would have for us in the next 30 years of our church. And one of the things that this book starts off with is addressing the function of church leadership and what is it is called to be. I cannot think of a better book to be studying during a season of pastoral transition than the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians that put what church leadership is called to be in perspective. And so at this time, I think this is really good for us. I would also add, and I know I'm going to bring it up and it's going to maybe tweak some of you, now is a really good time to reflect on the last two years. Nobody wants to talk more about COVID. I get that. Okay? I know that. And it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you fall on. Nobody wants to talk about it. But if we believe what James says, I don't mean Pastor James, I mean the book of James in the New Testament, that the testing of our faith is to produce certain character traits, then what we went through over the last two years bears reflection. And the book of Corinthians deals with a lot of challenging topics related to some of the things we struggled with over the course of COVID. What is a church gathering? Why do we gather? How do we interact with one another when we disagree? A lot of those topics are practical topics that the first, of, first book, or the, first, the book of 1 Corinthians deals with. So we're going to talk a little bit more about COVID. So bear with me on that. Secondly, this book is incredibly practical. I love how practical the book of 1 Corinthians is. We're going to deal with topics like church leadership, which, like I said, is extremely relevant. Sexual immorality, which nobody ever wants to talk about, but we need to. Marriage, which is always relevant. Christian freedom, does that seem relevant, potentially? Church gatherings, spiritual gifts, and many more practical topics. I love how practical the book of 1 Corinthians is. As opposed to a book like Romans, where Paul takes 12 chapters or 11 chapters to establish kind of his theological framework and then builds on that with application, Paul just jumps right into the practical topics in the book of 1 Corinthians. So right from the beginning, he's addressing very practical, very relevant things within the church, and this book is incredibly practical. But what I think is probably the most key is that this book is hopeful. This book is so hopeful. Despite writing to a broken and dysfunctional church, this book is so hopeful. This book stresses God's sovereignty over his church, that Christ is the king of his church, and Christ is in charge of his church. It stresses God's love for his church, that despite his church walking away from him and not being obedient in so many ways, God loves his church. It stresses God's working in his church, that even when the church is struggling to be obedient, the spirit and the word are alive and active and shaping people in the church. And it stresses God's resurrection of his church. Possibly the most famous chapter in the whole New Testament on the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15 to remind the church that one of the sources of their unity is the fact that they will all be resurrected one day. This book is so hopeful. It's a reminder that even the most dysfunctional churches, even the most broken churches, God is at work and God is faithful to them. And I think that's a worthwhile reminder for us as well. For all of these reasons and so many more, I think God has made it pretty clear both to the church elders and pastors and to myself that this study will be well worth our time, particularly in this season as a church. 
In this beginning, let me just remind you what Paul reminds them of, because we're going to be coming back again and again and again to Paul's introduction as we address the rest of the book. He greets this church by reminding them that they are brothers and saints in the gospel. He celebrates this broken church by reminding them that God is at work in them. He's going to move on to all of his correction and rebuke, but he starts with God's faithfulness and God's love for his church. Here's, I think, the key point, and we're going to come back to this again and again through the whole series. God loves, is at work in, and is faithful to even his most broken churches and saints. Remind yourself of that. God loves, is at work in, and is faithful to even his most broken churches and saints. That is not an excuse for living however we want. The rest of the book is going to address that. But God is faithful to his saints. He is faithful to his church. He loves his saints. He loves his church. He is at work in his bride, the church. And if God loves, is at work in, and is faithful to his church, we should too. We should too. See, God used the book of 1 Corinthians in my life in so many ways to change my heart and my mind about the church. When I struggled with the realities of what I had witnessed practically in the life of churches that I grew up in, God used the content of 1 Corinthians to reorient my heart and remind me of the way God sees his bride, the church. My prayer as we move through the book of 1 Corinthians is that we will together grow more like Christ as we move through this book and learn to love Christ's broken church more too. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are, for the fact that you are loving, that you are merciful, that you are gracious, that you are kind, that you are faithful, and that list could go on and on and on. We confess that to so many of those attributes, we are not that. And, you've, and yet you've called us out of the domain of darkness. You've called us into Christ and into the light. You've called us together as a church, and you've called us to be holy and to live for you. Father, it is so hard at times not to get frustrated, not to get annoyed with the church. We struggle with your bride, and we're part of it. And yet we recognize that you are faithful to your church. You love your church. You are at work in your church. Help change our hearts and minds. Help align us to the message of the book of 1 Corinthians. Remind us of the fact that we're yours. And the church is yours. And that she is your body and your bride. Use this study and our time in this book to transform us, to grow us in our love for the church as well. In Christ's name. Amen.